Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Stubbornly Optimistic, the podcast all about people and what makes them tick. Today's podcast is something that some of you, if you listen to episode 21, might have already known it was coming, and that is a exploration of something from philosophy called the Gettier problem. Ain't got a soapbox I can stand upon, God gave me a stage. Of- what is that? The Gettier problem exists as a challenge to the idea that knowledge of a thing, as we said last week, last time, knowledge that, can be defined as having component parts of a true justified belief. Because it is possible to get to a situation where you can have a true justified belief, but it doesn't quite feel like knowledge. So, to underpin this, let's go through a few examples, um, little thought experiments, etc. Caveat at the start of this, it's going to be kind of a technical episode. There's also, for those of you that listen to a lot of my podcasts, going to be some discussions of the Gettier problem with regards to gender, the phenomenon of gender, because, well, hey, that's where I exist, philosophically and professionally, academically. What do I know? Okay, so... What is a Gettier problem? Let's talk about planets. Here's a little extract from a video by Oliver Thorne, who is a philosopher on YouTube, and he explains here why Pluto is kind of like a Gettier problem. Knowledge, justified true belief. Seems like a pretty good definition, right? Job done. Well, maybe not. And it turns out that Pluto is actually quite important here because it illustrates a very famous issue in philosophy called the Gettier problem. For years, I and a lot of other people believed that there were nine planets in the solar system. Then it turned out that Pluto wasn't a planet, so we were down to eight. But now it turns out there might actually be a ninth planet lurking out somewhere beyond Neptune. So assuming that Planet Nine exists, for years we believed that there were nine planets, it was true, and we were justified in believing it because people had gone and checked and astronomers had looked through telescopes, we weren't just guessing, and yet we were in a sense wrong because we believed that Pluto was number nine, and it wasn't. Gettier problems are like that. They're imaginary scenarios where somebody has a justified true belief that nevertheless just seems too lucky to be knowledge. And a lot of epistemologists, that's philosophers of knowledge, are trying to figure out how to get around this. So, you've heard Oliver there explaining the one particular type of Gettier problem as it pertains to Pluto. Pluto was a planet, isn't now, probably doesn't mind. 
but we were kind of right and also wrong at the same time. It's a little bit like Schrodinger's knowledge. Is it knowledge or isn't it? And it depends on whether or not you open the box to see if the knowledge is there or not. If you're not aware of what Schrodinger is, Schrodinger is a thought experiment where you have a cat that you put in a box and you never open the box again. At some point that cat is going to die, but you can't tell whether the cat is dead or alive unless you open the box. So there is a philosophical idea here that the cat is both dead and alive because you can't disprove either. It was alive when it was last in the box, put in the box, but you can't open it to find out if it, you know. Now I'm not suggesting you go and do this to cats because that would be horrible and I've got two cats and I love them to bits. But, you know, Schrodinger's thing of not knowing, it's like Schrodinger's knowledge here of, is it knowledge? Is it not? I don't know. Anyway, here's the actual original Gettier problem as it was laid out. There are two men, Smith and Jones. They've applied for a particular job, but Smith has been told by the company president that Jones will win the fight. He will get the job. Smith combines that testimony with his own observational evidence of there being 10 coins in Jones's pocket. He had counted them earlier. And he proceeds to infer that whoever will get the job has 10 coins in their pocket. Seems like a reasonable conclusion. Notice that Smith is not guessing. On the contrary, his belief enjoys a reasonable amount of justification. There is the company president's testimony, there is his own observations of the coins in Jones's pocket, and there is Smith's proceeding to infer that his belief is sensible and seemingly rational. It's well justified, therefore, supported by the evidence which is good in a reasonably normal way. As it happens, this belief that the person who gets the job will have 10 coins in their pocket turns out to be true although not in the way in which Smith was expecting it to be true. For it is Smith who gets the job, and Smith himself has ten coins in his pocket. These two facts combine to make his belief that the person who gets the job will have ten coins in their pocket true, but nevertheless, neither of those facts is something that on its own was known to Smith. Is his belief therefore not knowledge. In other words, does Smith fail to know that the person who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket? Surely so, thought Gettier. Now this is the problem, because one can hold a justified belief, and from a certain point of view, it could be true, but is it knowledge? Now, I thought I would have a crack at this one because I, I love things like this. And I've actually used a reason I have linked explanation uh, regarding Pluto is because I have used that example of Pluto before in some of my other writings when talking about categorical descriptors. Pluto used to be a planet. It isn't anymore. I'm sure it doesn't mind. And the point that I was making with that is that things actual manifestations of physical items are not the same as the categories that we use to describe them. And that was one of my early observations. So this this whole Gettier problem really, really piqued my interest. And so let's let's have a play with this. 
Firstly, I have to say that I believe the Gettier problems, as described here with Pluto and with Smith and Jones, do not constitute knowledge. And we have to explain why. If we're talking about definitional arguments of knowledge as being made up of those components, the justified true belief, and yet the Gettier problems fit that definitional idea, we have to explain why philosophers, myself included, do not believe that the Gettier problems constitute knowledge. I think the solution relies in an examination of how one arrives at one's conclusion. Um, in order for something to be knowledge, it has to be believed as a result of, in my opinion, reasoning. And if you look at the Gettier problem of Smith and Jones, there was no way that Smith could have reasoned his way to the actual conclusion because he didn't have the information to hand at the time. And this is why it doesn't actually feel like knowledge. Um, also, if you start to dig a little bit deeper into that, the types of reasoning are interesting because, as I have spoken about in the last podcast, you have deductive reasoning, which is based on direct observations. The deduction, for example, that there was 10 coins in Jones's pocket. That's a direct observation, deductive reasoning, but doesn't, that doesn't seem unusual. But it was inductive to assume that Jones would get the job because it hadn't happened yet. It was a future event. It was knowledge of a proposition, not an outcome. And that is very different to suggesting that he knew the outcome. One might suggest, of course, that inductive reasoning is not in and of itself wrong. Indeed, Francis Bacon, who some might call the father of the modern scientific method, um, was responsible for coining the term, if you like, of inductive reasoning to extend a hypothesis. But that is the point. It is an extrapolation of an unknown, a potential outcome. Yeah. So it's probability. And if you look at statistical stuff, independent events, chance, etc., you then end up in a situation where your knowledge of whatever it may be is based on the human's ability to extrapolate now into the future. We can kind of take our brain, and this is where I think humans are awesome, we can take our brain and kind of time travel with it. Why? Because we have experience and we can go, well... What is the inferred conclusion to the most likely outcome? And we think we know, but it hasn't happened yet. Case in point, you guys thought that you knew that this episode was coming out last Sunday. And I deliberately gave you that idea because the most probable outcome is, given my schedule, that I would put it out last Sunday. But actually, did you know? Or was it an inferred conclusion as to the most likely outcome? And I've actually put this out a week late just to highlight that point. I'm not sure Kant would be very happy with me because I kind of denied your agency in doing that by telling something as a, as a fib, but that's another story for another day. It does, however, lead quite nicely into a point about knowledge that comes from Ernest Sosa's work in 2011. Um, this is a relatively recent view that knowledge isn't something we have, it's something we do. Now, I deliberately did an action in telling you that this was going to go out in the next one and it would be out on a certain date, and then it was not, and therefore I did knowledge. It's a performative action. And 
this is really useful when you look at this point of deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning because we do the reasoning. It's not just an innate, we have knowledge, we acquire knowledge. We're actually doing some work under this under the hood in between our ears to arrive at a conclusion. And de Souza actually critiques this in that the performance has to have certain qualities, what he calls a triple A type of creditworthy scale, if you like. In order to be um, a creditworthy performance that is likely to result in knowledge that we're going to attribute certain amount of weight to, um, the the three things are it has to be accurate, it has to be adroit, and it has to be apt. And I'm talking about the process of acquisition of this knowledge. Okay, so. The example here that I've got in front of me is an archer. If an archer hits the bullseye, that shot can be accurate. It can be adroit, as in it shows a certain amount of skill. And is it apt because of the two, the interrelation between those other two things? If it's accurate because it was adroit, skillful, then, you know, the, the account of it, the archer hitting the bullseye is apt and if you drop this into the Gettier problem that I talked about Smith and Jones Smith had no way of reasoning to the conclusion that was actually the outcome so therefore his outcome and the truth of that knowledge isn't apt he didn't do that knowledge he didn't acquire it via his own actual work if you like. So I really like this sort of performative thing. And it, it is useful when we think of knowledge in those terms and come to the bit that I was going to mention, gender. Okay, so we're talking about gender, the knowledge of gender in this particular context. And I mentioned a little bit about this when I was critiquing the ideas of Dr. So. Um, in the last podcast that was all about what it means to be educated. So in this context, we need to look at how we arrived at our concepts of gender. And the performative view of knowledge is really, really key to this. We do knowledge in terms of scientific inquiry, in terms of extrapolating data, in terms of statistical probability, there is a reasoning, an action underneath what we think we know and whether those things that we believe we know, we think we know, constitute true justified beliefs are based on evidence. And as I've said before in my critique of Dr. So, without going over the same sort of arguments, the binary model of gender inductive reasoning. Performative knowledge requires us to reason and it requires us to reason on observation, evidence and to some degree an inference of likely outcome. And the binary idea of gender fits into this and it's a reasonably good way of explaining how knowledge changes. In ye olden times 
it was perfectly reasonable and perfectly rational to assume that gender was binary based on anatomic stuff. As our knowledge grew, as we did more knowledge, scientific inquiry, scientific discovery, genetics, inferences of the meaning of our discoveries, which is doing knowledge, again, an inferred reason, that would be Edmund Wilson and Nettie Stevens, and inferring a reason from an observation. Our knowledge changes, and as a result, the old model of the binary thing doesn't quite cut it anymore. It's really rather simple from, from this perspective. But the older view of knowledge as something that you have, you know, doesn't really leave room for this idea that, that knowledge can change. So I, I really I really sort of resonated with the Gettier problems because to an extent Gettier unlocks the idea that what we thought we knew we didn't. It was a true justified belief up until the point it wasn't true. Our knowledge of the evidence has resulted in the older evidence being superseded. So our justifications have changed and therefore what was once considered knowledge is no longer considered to be so. So when people turn around and say, you know, you're denying science or you're denying knowledge or you're just dissing the idea of scientific inquiry, denying biology, not really. It doesn't quite work like that. Um, I would suggest that trans people and people that don't fit into this binary box are actually evidence of humans paying more attention to our existential knowledge. That's enough for me. That's just a massive monologue. Um, thanks for listening, guys. It was a really long one, and it was, as I said, quite technical. I need to give some acknowledgements. Firstly, to Oliver Thorne, who appeared at the very front of this video. I don't own any part of that work. That is his. You can find him on Philosophy Tube. Really, really interesting guy to listen to with a great way of critiquing some of these arguments and making things really simple. Secondly, Dr. Rachel McKinnon. I referenced Ernest Sosa's work from 2011. That comes from a piece of work that was published and that appears in the Routledge Handbook um, of Luck. So thank you for that. Lastly, but not least, my friend and colleague Emma, who gave me some bits and pieces and pointers towards Francis Bacon. So thank you guys. I couldn't do it all on my own. Obviously, some of this knowledge comes from other places. Beyond that, I hope you have a great day, guys. And as I always say, keep it stubbornly optimistic. And remember, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will change. Bye for now. Hi guys, just at the end of this show, I thought I would let you know about the updated social media links. Obviously, we now have the Optimisticality Works website. You can find that at www.optimisticality.works. And there you can find blogs that go along with the podcast. Also, you can find me on Twitter if you search at acorn underscore two underscore oak. That is Optimisticality's Twitter feed.
and the hashtag Stubbornly Optimistic. Stubbornly Optimistic is also the name of the Facebook group that goes along with these podcasts. And finally, we have Optimisticality Works Facebook page, which does what it says on the tin. It's a Facebook page where I share everything else as well. If you want to get in contact with me directly, suggestions for the show or questions for any of the guests, etc., then you can email me at sarah at stubbornlyoptimistic.me. So send your thoughts in, send any comments in, and let's see what we can do with the conversation, people. Any more questions you want to ask? Just to get in the car. And go where? 50 years from now, when you're looking back at your life, don't you want to be able to say you had the guts to get in the car? Thank <laughs> you.